This one is so good. This was a conversation with Eric Cressy, one of the foremost strength and conditioning coaches really in the country, um, has risen to prominence when he started CSP. Um, that's both in Massachusetts and Florida, and now he is essentially director of performance at the New York Yankees. He spent a bunch of time just walking through his evaluation, also highlighting what he's learned through his career, both business and clinical sides. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount just talking with him, so generous with his time, uh, really made for an eye-opening conversation, what it's like to, to be in the big leagues and also to be in the, in the private sector. Um, so I, I really hope you guys enjoy it. Please share your feedback, um, share the conversation with, with anyone who might enjoy um, some high-level clinical and also, also business takeaways. Um, so please spread it around. Give us a, a nice review wherever you're listening to your podcast. As always, if you're interested in joining the True Sports Physical Therapy team, shoot me an email, yoni, Y-O-N-I, at truesportspt.com, or you can always hit us on Instagram at truesportspt. Uh, we'd love, we'd love to educate you. We'd love to have you as part of the team and I'd love to learn from you. We'd all love to learn from you. So drop us a line and please enjoy this conversation with Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the true sports physical therapy podcast. As always, this is Yoni Rosenblatt, your host, really excited to have Eric Cressy with us. Um, the man, the myth, the legend have known him for a number of years now. Um, and we're going to dive into all things business and then get into all things clinical specifically obviously when you talk to eric cressy you better talk about strength training for the pitcher um so what i want to start with is eric as if no one knows who you are tell us who the hell you are and how you got where you are today right on well first off thank you very much for having me um yeah i mean the, the i guess the the cliff notes version um i co-founded cressy sports performance we started out with a massachusetts facility back in 2007 um, and quickly kind of established this baseball niche that you know developed into something that was more than just high school kids it became college guys pro guys um, we saw guys from all 30 major league organizations in 2014 we opened a Florida location um, and then expanded it in, in 2019 so we have or basically our two locations one in Massachusetts one in Florida um, and then in, at the end of 2019 um, I joined the New York Yankees as director of player health and performance which is a basically a role that oversees strength conditioning, nutrition, and elements of manual therapy. Um, we work in, in parallel with sports medicine and our performance science department. Then on top of that, I do writing, consulting, speaking, a lot of things in that vein. And then I'm a, a husband and a, and a dad of three daughters. Okay, I love it. I am also a husband and a dad of three daughters. So great we got minds. that going on. <laughs> yeah, great minds. Um, so let me ask you this. How do you juggle those things? How are you the world's best dad and husband and businessman and strength coach? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's a it's a very much a moving target and something that I've you know had to work very very hard to kind of learn to optimize as best I can. I, I think you know it's probably like uh, you know any uh, anybody's parenting experience is some days you feel like you're you're way better at it than others. Um, so I think if there's one thing I I've, I've learned, it's you know understanding like what things I do well and what I don't do well. Um, you know, if you look at kind of like, you know, the, the classic entrepreneurial, you know, initiatives, you know, they talk about the technician, the entrepreneur and the manager. You know, I tend to be a, a pretty good technician. Uh, I tend to be pretty entrepreneurial. I'm not always the best manager of people. Um, so I'm really fortunate, you know, in, in our Massachusetts facility, my business partner, Pete and John uh, O'Neill, they really take the lead on, on a lot of that stuff. 
um, at you know at CSP Florida, my, my wife Anna and my business partner Shane, you know, they handle a lot of that stuff. And then you know, in our Yankees role, you know, got an amazing major league strength coach and Brett McCabe, and then Donovan Santos is our assistant director of player health and performance. Um, and Donovan's got you know over twenty years in, in professional baseball and um, just just a wonderful guy when it comes to you know you know leading people, managing systems, things like that. So. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, and, and I, I don't necessarily love the term, but it's one that's been thrown out there. You, you kind of have visionaries and you have integrators. Um, I've been really, really fortunate to have some awesome integrators that, you know, that have allowed me to kind of nerd out a little bit more, try to be a little bit more visionary, try to, you know, see parallels and connections across different disciplines. And um, so I, I think a lot of the success, you know, we're maybe taking on a high workload has, has really been a function of just awesome people working behind the scenes to, to set me up for success. I'm, I'm really lucky to have them. Did you set out to do this? Did you have any type of vision of what this would look like? Yeah, um, you know, the baseball niche, no. Um, to be honest, Pete, Pete and I joke about it when we first opened up. You know, we were we were training who anyone anyone who would help us pay our rent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then, you know, I, I, I think it was probably a year or two into our business. We actually, and to be honest, I don't even remember it. Pete tells me about it often. He, where we actually had like a sit-down meeting with myself, Pete, and, and, and Tony Jalicor, who's another one of our co-founders. We're like, what are we doing? Like, this is becoming like all baseball players. Like, it's going to be empty once baseball season's going. And, you know, we've got to diversify. We've got to get more athletes in here from different sports and da 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 And apparently, like, and I don't even remember saying it. He reminds me of it. He's like, I was like, well, why don't we just double down on baseball? And, um, again, apparently it was like a very impactful moment for him and the – you know, on the, like I say, on the managerial side of things, on the entrepreneurial side of things. But um, it just so happened that was something that, you know, we really embraced. We realized it was a very underserved population. And um, in light of that, we, just, we were, I think, in a good position, right time, right place. And, you know, we studied hard. We, you know, we, we tried to, uh, you know, critically evaluate our results or, or lack thereof to see what worked and what didn't. And, you know, I think here we are, you know, 16 years later, and it's something that's still, you know, very much a work in progress. We, we try to evolve all the time. Like, we make our mistakes, we take our licks just like everybody else, but we, we try to be better, you know, with each passing day, and we try to create really, really good synergy across our departments. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I think that's really vitally important for, for people to consider is, you know, I'm fortunate. I see it from, you know, the major league team side, and I see it from the private sector side. And, um, excuse me, for the longest time, we had to compete with major league organizations in the private sector. You know, we were, you know, a staff of seven and, you know, we were up against these multi-billion dollar franchises, yet athletes were moving to the middle of nowhere to train with us for an extended period of time. And, you know, there, there was a critical point where I kind of just started to think about, like, why would they do this? And it always comes back to, you know, our, our synergy, how well we were able to communicate with one another, how well we were delivered, able to deliver a very personalized experience for our athletes to show that we really cared. Um, you know, and over the course of time, we just tried to build out our staff more and more with, with a lot of really good growth mindset people that were, you know, all collectively focused on all that matters is the athlete's outcome. You know, don't design your business model, design your training model, because the training model is, is what supports the athletes, you know, <laughs> far more than the, the business aspect of it. And, you know, have we left some money on the table over the years because of it? Probably, but I, but I do think we probably had greater adherence from our athletes and greater long-term relationships with our clients because of it. Dude, they, I mean, I run into your athletes all over. I mean, even in Baltimore and, but worked with them when I worked with um, the Israeli national baseball team, they just freaking love you. I mean, they love you. It's, it's, it's really incredible. And when I spent time down in your Florida facility before you blew it out, um, there, there was a very clear culture, a Cressy culture that was there. 
How did you develop that and how conscious were you to cultivate it? Yeah, I, I think the secret is that you don't develop it. You let the athletes do it. Um, you, you set the guardrails, right? You know, it's like it's like bowling with your kids. Like we just put the bumper plates in the or the bumpers in the uh, in the gutters and bumper let them plates, do the thing. But, like you know, it's funny, like uh, CSP family that started with an athlete like the, he, he, you know, it was a hashtag that he brought up. Um, you know, it, it just happened over the course of time. Like there were periods you know, before my wife and I had kids where we had like four different minor leaguers, like staying in, in our bedrooms at our house. Like we were, we were the crusty bed and breakfast. Um, so I, I really think, you know, not to use a hacking expression again, but I, I think culture is a moving target. It's, it's, you know, I think it's in a good place, but it's a very different culture than it was in say 2009, 2010. It's, it's had to evolve over the course of time, but, um, yeah, I think it's vitally important to let the athletes drive it. Um, and you just have to be mindful of like what is and isn't okay. Like what are the, you know, the direct, like you're not going to walk into our facility. I'm never going to be okay with F-bombs and Edwards, like in, in the music. Like it's just not okay. That's not something I am. It doesn't matter whether we have athletes that don't mind that kind of music. Like that's something that for me personally is not, you know, something that I'm cool with. So you, you, you do have to, you know, establish some guardrails, but. Um, you know, I think for the most part, athletes have, have really handled themselves really well in, in, you know, in, in taking that autonomy. What's different about the athlete today, 2023, versus 2007 in mass? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I think it's representative of a larger, um, you know, kind of big picture industry discussion. Um, I don't think the athletes are inherently different. I think the situations that govern their behavior are different, right? There's way more distractions. You know, there's more you know, social media, you know, phones are a lot different now than they were in 2007. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more pressure to be really good early. You know, there's, there's definitely way more sports specialization, um, you know, on that side of things. I, I think parents have definitely evolved for the worse <laughs> since then. You know, there's a lot more of keeping yeah. up with the Joneses. Um, you know, I, I don't think we let kids fail nearly enough. I think our, our job as coaches is really to give athletes an opportunity to fail safely, you know, let them, let them fail forward um, where there aren't consequences. So that's a big one. And then the other thing, just like speaking specifically to baseball, um, as a frame of reference, if you were an 88 to 90 left-handed pitcher, when we opened CSP in 2007, you were a top five rounder. It was, it was a done deal, even out of high school. Like it, you, you were probably a top two rounder if you were doing that high school. Um, and there was some period, probably 2016, 2017, where we had five free agent lefties throwing 95 who couldn't get jobs in professional baseball. It's insane. It was, it was astounding to me. And like some, one of them was like from the University of Buffalo. It's like, you know, in the past, this would have been a guy that like every scout in the country had been racing to see and all that. And the velocity has just surged so much. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you're obviously in the sports medicine world. We realize that we're just, we're playing with a completely different set of rules. When I, people, when I hear people like ranting and raving and, um, you know, about the injury rates and, and even the stuff that's happening like in the NBA with all the workload management. It's, the games are played in, at such outrageous speeds that, that the, the casual fan just can't appreciate um, this. I've, I've told this story before, but uh, Buddy Morris is, you know, a guy who's been in the industry for a long time. And, you know, Buddy was in the NFL. He left went to the college setting. And he came back to the NFL. And I saw him probably 2006 or so at a conference. And he was just like, Eric, you people can't understand it's like a car accident on every play in the nfl now like you know the average careers you know, two years for some yep. of these guys and um baseball is just it's like that as well we know that um you know basically every mile per hour increase in velocity on average is about a 15 to 20 percent increase in ucl injury risk um, depending on the study you look at and 
Um, you know, it, we, we saw it front and center, you know, like our, our Yankees roster last year. We had the highest average fastball velocity in Major League history. We were also, for most of the season, the second oldest roster. So you just, you know, it's an interesting kind of like combination and something you have to be really mindful of. Yeah, it, it is crazy. I, I mean, we have we have a staff PT. Well, now he's a clinic director who throws 96 miles an hour. Like, <laughs> how how is that possible that yeah. that guy walks away from the game throwing 96, totally yeah. healthy, and gets his doctorate? Like, yeah. It's because everyone throws 96. Um, it's, it's, it's really crazy to think about. So, you know, you said you made your mistakes. You, you took your licks. What's the biggest mistake you made clinically? Yeah, I mean, clinically, I, I think, uh, you know, I, where, where to begin. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say one um, is, you know, I, I always, this is one that actually um, really, I think, keeps, still keeps me up at night. Um, we, we had a young athlete, I won't mention by name, who's a pretty high-round draft pick who, um, we kind of took him under his wing. His dad passed away from cancer not long after he was drafted. He dropped everything, moved to Massachusetts, and, and really became part of our family. And um, left-handed pitcher who just could not get lefties out. They saw his curveball out of his hand, um, and he always had talent. And you know, basically, the the play was to learn a slider. And I just I'll never forget. He went out and he just threw slider after slider after slider that off season, and it, it was nasty. And he blew out his elbow in his, you know, second week of the season. And looking back, it was just like it was it was a complete oh, it was completely overlooking both workload and the fact that learning a new pitch is inherently more stressful because it's not optimized, synchronized. And you know, that was probably two thousand nine, two thousand ten when that happened. And um, you know, you, you you're a guy who's in you know low A high at that point and you, you miss a year and a half for Tommy John it's a it's a massive stunt to your sure. development and yeah. and he never made it and when we're still very close to this day he was at my wedding like you know we, we text often you know he's, he's part of our family for good and he actually is in the fitness industry now I'm super proud of like what he's become but he didn't get to the big leagues and I look back on that and I, it, it always motivates me because if I had known then what I know now he probably would have gone to the big leagues and, and I know it because like what we can do with edgertronic cameras, what we can do with just ball tracking metrics. Like he could have learned that slider in 25% as many pitches. Sure. Um, and not only that, I would have had a much better mindset for you know acute chronic workload, what a standard off season was, how, how different an off season in Massachusetts is compared to what they get when they go to spring training. We've definitely seen examples of guys who go from cold weather to warm weather and it's a it, it can be a huge, um, it can be a big velocity jump in many cases that they get warm weather. Um, it does seem like their workload always spikes because they feel better. I just, I know how to counsel guys better on this stuff now. Um, so like big picture clinically, like that's, that's a sample size of one that um, as much as it stinks, you know, and I, I, I wish it was a different outcome. Um, it has been a great motivator for me. It's been I mean, something that, you know, you, you never want to not be able to help a guy like that who was completely committed to the process. And I, I thought we did a great job with his training and, at that point, I just didn't see every element of synergy that I really, I think, see now. And, and it's still a, an evolving model for sure. But but also, there was so much you couldn't measure. Yeah. Like, how the, you know, how the hell were you supposed to know? Yeah. Um, and had you had those tools, you know, it speaks to, like, what we're asking yeah. these arms to do with yeah. weighted balls and with all the load. But also on the on the flip side, uh, like, on, on both of our professional levels, it's you're looking to – add the latest and greatest in injury prevention, right? And Correct. injury mitigation. And, and so hopefully those things come along. That is eye-opening and definitely been there. I love that you used it to fuel the next 10 years of your career yeah. or, you know, eight years of career so far. So the, the second thing I'll say too, it's maybe a little bit of a ride on it's, it's, it's kind of our current con conquest. Um, I think for too long, we've, um, we've tried to use norms 
You know, I, I think everyone's familiar with like ASMI's Critical Instance and a lot of things that they put out back in the day. And we, we know some of the best throwers on the planet are way outside the normative ranges on, on a lot of those things. And I, I think for too long we chased optimal pitching mechanics and, and we've gone much more to like an archetype model is that, mm -hmm. you know, you can see the difference between a wide and a narrow infrasternal angle and the way that they attack things. You know, your narrow ISA guys, it's like, it's find them a hip hinge. Your wide ISA guys, it's, it's teach them how to rotate in a, in a narrow hallway. Like you just see some of these cues. And I, I just, I look back over the years and, you know, it wasn't me directly necessarily coaching these guys on pitching mechanics, but I, I could have been a better advocate for, for them with pitching coaches if I understood how to really batch athletes. <clears throat> I think we're seeing more and more resources now where you can say, all right, pitcher X, has this movement screen, um, has this kind of range of motion, has this, you know, basically infrasternal angle, it's this archetype. And then also, you know, these are how their fastball profiles look. You know, they, they throw a, you know, a slider from, from this vertical release height and hey, the vertical approach angle on this fastball is this. And we now have the data where we can literally match them up perfectly to a, to an existing major leaguer who's having success. And that is so powerful. And, and that's what we've really done at our facility. We use um, Thea, which is a, a, an awesome uh, markerless biomechanics um, setup where you can basically take it on field and get it in a really game-like you know, experience without having to rig like you know, markers all over people. And it's been so cool just to see the data set emerge and, and honestly just nerd out on the outliers, um, mm -hmm. see some of these guys that do crazy things, looking at like a a guy with antiverted hips, like who just does things completely different than you would expect, but he, he's known to protect himself from cookie cutter coaching cues over the years. And, you know, now we have, you know, a, basically a, a movement awareness and the data to basically like, you have been right all these years. Don't let them change you. What you're doing right now is, is, is something you should absolutely embrace. So that's, that's exciting using like these, these movement models to drive what is the right kind of pitching mechanics for people. Yeah, I think that is awesome. So you're you're speaking to to hundreds if not thousands of sports PTs, you know, coming on here. So so there's some type of understanding but um and, and clinical acumen, but I do think that this these newer ways to bucket these athletes doesn't hit the medical side enough. And so do me a favor, can you just can you just break down those archetypes and the way you look at it and that's going to bleed into your eval when a, yeah. when a pitcher walks in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the first thing we, we can both agree, I know you deal with a ton of throwers, both in your clinic and then, you know, obviously in your, in your experience in like being involved in competitive baseball is, you know, in general, um, a lot of the information surrounding baseball development and, and also baseball rehab, even surgical interventions, to be honest, is very slow to trickle down um, in the research community. Like, you know, we still see kids that come in with a diagnosis of GERD. It's like, guys, like, if they don't have GERD, I'm more concerned, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and, and really more and more of the research is showing that it's, it's actually a, a, you know, insufficient external rotation, particularly active external rotation that's far more concerning. So um, if you don't have retroversion in your, your proximal humerus, you're probably not going to throw a baseball at a high level. So I, I'm always astounded at how often, you know, we get that on a, a note from a doctor or, you know, from a physical therapist. And, and I can tell you, honestly, every other week, I actually saw two this week kids with bum shoulders who had been sleeper stretched 
cool. the cows come home as part of rehab. And what have they done? They had taken something that was probably a mild internal impingement from a lack of controlling their external rotation. And instead, they walked in with a bursitis and a, and a more pronounced cuff irritation because they were just beating on the other aspect of their joint. So, um, you know, I think that's something that we need to be very mindful is that the, the the new information is just not being disseminated to the people that really need to hear it. And that's why I'm always a big advocate to our athletes is, is go to people that have, you know, a, a track record in this. Like, don't just go to the same ortho that recommends labor repairs to every thrower that comes in with a little bit of posterior labral fraying. It's a totally yeah. normal finding. So we've, we've really worked hard to build out that network. So how do we change? So I know you have that network cause I've hit you up when I'm like, you know, I got a guy yeah. in Boise to find whatever, some PT. Yeah. So how, how do we get that information down to the clinicians quicker? Yeah. I, to be honest, I think one thing that's exciting, this is where social media has actually been really good. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have some wonderful physicians and PTs that are putting themselves out there. Like, um, like I don't know if you know uh, Christopher Camp, who's the, the twins team doctor trained yep. at HSS. Um, Chris has done some wonderful research and, and put a lot of great information out on injury rates and, you know, all these different things. Stan Connie's put stuff out publicly. Um, there's actually a ton of information out there. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, you're seeing doctors, you know, our own team doctor, Chris Ahmad, is, is outstanding. He's got an excellent social media, you know, presence. And he's got, you know, Frank Alexander, who's kind of his clinic director, who, who does a lot of great stuff for disseminating the information. There are really good PTs and, and, and MDs that are actually going out there and, and shouting this stuff from the rooftop. So, so I think that's a very exciting aspect of social media. There's a lot of negativity out there. But if you're a young, enthusiastic you know, clinician and you're excited to go learn, like it's definitely out there. And not only that, like people are very accessible. Like, yeah. you know, you know, go to ASMI and literally just stick around like after the, the seminar meets and these, these guys will spend a ton of time with you and, um, and talk you through these things because they want to see the industry get better. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, again, I'm, I'm going on a tangent, like, you know, baseball is something I love. It's something I, I did with my my grandfather took me and I learned how to read off of baseball cards. And I remember, you know, going to minor league games in Connecticut when I was four, you know, and going to Red, you know, see Brett Saberhagen face Roger Clemens at Fenway Park. Like these are things that stand on my memory. Like I want to leave the game better than I found it. And I, and I think that's true of, you know, all the clinicians that I interact with. I think it's true of a lot of the players as well. Like they're, they're very focused on this being better. So um, fortunately we have people that are, that are putting themselves out there and, and trying to, you know, be the rising tide that you know that, that lifts all ships and I, and I think you're you're a great example of that like hopping on this um opening day night like just hopping on a pod right mm -hmm. in, in your hotel room and um we really appreciate it it's also on the clinicians like all the clinicians here listening all the clinicians that work with me like when when Cressy mentions this growth mindset like the information is now there you just got to chase it you you got to be discerning but you got to show the want to go get that information and it is totally readily available. Something that, I mean, I just got off a phone call yesterday. I was talking to the Mets doctor and he's classically trained uh, upper extremity specialist, orthopedic surgeon. He's like, I don't operate on shoulders in pictures anymore. I'm like, what? Like we're going to do this whole pod. He's like, you don't fix shoulders. You fix elbows. You refer shoulders to PTs. So like, I'm like, where the hell did you learn that? Because 98% of MDs just aren't thinking that way. And what I'd love to see is just more of that MDPT collaboration. And by yeah. the way, the strength coach knows more than all of us. <laughs> so, so like, I think pull it, pour, like pulling down those silos is a number one. It sounds like you're doing something really special like that. 
in New York, it's definitely, by the way, like to answer my own question to you, I think that's what makes the culture down at Cressy so awesome or up at Cressy. Like there just aren't silos. It's really yeah. refreshing. So, so that's my segue to my very first Cressy memory. Okay. You still had that haircut. It was <laughs> like 20, by the way, should we have done this earlier? We probably should have taken it down earlier than we did. No, like, no. What? We're your good. hat you're good okay. you're good so, so um okay i go i go i go down to florida i meet eric cressy super nice shakes my hand it's like 7 30 in the morning um we talk a little bit about god knows what and then you look up at me and you're like uh yoni uh i got a coach now i'm like what uh okay and like you just walk away from me and you just lock in to the athletes that are in front of you because that's what you freaking love doing and it was just refreshing to see that you still gave a damn 10 12 years in right so what you did on that day was you walked away from me and you're like hey i have an eval i'm gonna go work i went to your uh, partner shane rye down there and spent time with him but i never got to see what happened when you did that e eval and that intake okay so that's what i wanted to get to yeah. today so professional baseball pitcher walks in um, let's say he's double A. He hears about Cressy on IG. All of his buddies say, hey, I go down to Cressy in the offseason. It's October 1st. What does that interaction look like with you? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it, above all, it's a, there, there's an element of prospecting that takes place beforehand, right? Um, just we want to make sure that they, you know, they're, they're matched up to the right person on our staff. And yes, I, I do the overall majority of the pro athletes, but um, evaluations, but there are, you know, a lot more you know, guys that come in that might see other members of our staff who are, you know, a better fit and, and stuff like that. So, um, but, but what it actually comes to, you know, the assessment, you know, I've usually got their entire injury history in front of me, but you usually want to pry just because guys generally tend to under-report under -report on that stuff. You know, high school athletes that, you know, don't list prescription medications or, you know, broken bones in the past and things like that. So I always try to pry a little bit, but Really, more than anything, that that initial day is really get to know you. Um, the most important thing is to build some rapport, let them know that you genuinely care, and you're you're interested in learning a lot more than just a cursory, you know, medical history. You want to dig in on, you know, how something may have altered their mechanics after an injury, or you know, hey, what are you trying to do this off season? Let's let's talk through the go goals, all that stuff. Went went well this past season. What didn't? Um, <clears throat> and then from there in the office. Um, you know, we'll go through you know a collection of like postural assessments, everything from static posture, you know, SFMA, cervical screens, shoulder flexion, abduction, ER where the arms adducted. Uh, we'll look at a toe touch. We'll look at a single leg balance. Um, you know, we'll do some manual muscle testing of the cuff. Um, and then once I've got a pretty good feel for all that stuff, um, we will head back out. Um, you know, and actually you know do some stuff on the tables where we get a lot of classic. I guess orthopedic range of motion assessments, um, measure infrasternal angle, um, and then get them up, do more dynamic screens, things like a you know, overhead lunge walk, overhead squat, push-up test, um, look at like a, a dorsiflexion range of motion test. Um, and, and all those things get logged in our, our data set. And that's where it's really, really key is that the way that that is structured um, in, our, in our cloud, our pitching crew and our hitting crew has full access to it. And that's vitally, vitally important. It's not just, it doesn't go in like a lockbox and no one sees it because we want them to have access to it so that they kind of have a feel for, all right, this guy's got a you know, 10 degree loss of extension in his elbow. Like it might impact his ability to you know, stay on the baseball and, and throw a really good changeup or something like that. We also do a, um, a Proteus power test um, just to give us an idea of kind of like how they profile out from a force velocity standpoint. 
Um, you know, you get guys that are, you know, kind of like your classic fashionably driven athletes that are really elastic. You'll see, you know, some athletes that are more mechanical, more, you know, wide ISA, just strong dudes that don't move fast enough. And you'll see guys that are just, you know, plain weak that, that you know, haven't even bought themselves a seat at the table. So they need to just train. Um, and that's something we try to, you know, retest over the course of the off season. Um, they, they also will do more of like a skill specific meeting. So like they're going to sit down and they're going to go over everything with our pitching coaches. They're going to break down video of their deliveries. Um, they're going to talk about, you know, their pitch mix, how it all works together, their usage, um, all these different things. Um, those are always interesting conversations because there is such a mixed bag of experiences across, you know, the 30 professional organizations and, and certainly across the college realm as well. But, um, you know, the goal is obviously to, to dig in on how the body moves. We do a lot of test retest um, as part of that just to see if, you know, someone has some mild symptoms, can we, you know, alleviate it? Um, and then also it's, it's a chance from a, a really like a, a more like skill specific standpoint, try to really um, hone in on how we can, you know, absolutely help them to become better baseball players above all else. Yeah. Now the only tech I heard you mention is Proteus. Yeah. Um, are you using goniometry in this? Yeah, we will. We okay. will. To be honest, I eyeball a lot um, yeah. just because I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit less, our, our physical therapist will definitely measure, but you know, I, I can kind of tell you whether it's you know, 30 degrees of internal rotation at a shoulder, 45. So, you know, yeah. you can spend all day measuring. But for the most part, uh, my eyeball goniometer is reasonably accurate. Um, we do use a lot of tech. Um, you know, Proteus is, is, is certainly part of it. You know, we've, we've done 10-yard start times. You know, we can measure vertical jump. Um, I tend to like Proteus just because it, you know, it's outside the sagittal plane a little bit more. But um, we have a ton of tech on the pitching side of things. Um, that, you but know, but that man, eval. But yeah, that eval. Man, Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of guys will throw exit bullpens with us when they do come in at the end of the season, um, you know, if, if the timing is right and it kind of works mm -hmm. out. But to be honest, you know, you probably need those a little bit less than ever before because video is so accessible and then all the external metrics are so available for these guys. And, and many times the athletes bring them with them. Um, so you don't have to really, you know, search for it nearly as bad as you used to. And then you're you're yeah. taking all that data and mm -hmm. putting it in what? 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 Uh, it just for us it goes to the cloud um so we have access to it so we can repeat you know our, our evaluations and make sure things are improving in the direction we want but more importantly it it allows our pitching and, and hitting crews to really kind of build out this archetype of, of how we want you know people to be coached what are the what are the key competencies what are the goals um and to be honest this goes hand in hand with with the our, our markerless biomechanics stuff you know guys aren't always throwing exit bullpens on that when they arrive in the fall um but they definitely are getting onto Thea, you know, starting in January, so we can get some really good data on that. And um, you see some pretty crazy stuff. You see some guys with, you know, shockingly limited shoulder external rotation who are able to, you know, generate velo with a little bit more lateral trunk tilt. You see athletes who, you know, spin the ball at like outrageously high RPMs, yet they have some of the stiffest wrists that you could possibly imagine. And and, and so. You, you know, I, I'm a big believer. It's, it's kind of like a Stuart McGill um, lesson, but he, he always talked about, you know, don't just look for the averages, look for the outliers, you know, mm -hmm. figure out why weird things work. Um, and I, I've always tried to embrace unique and, and what makes guys special. So, um, you know, those are just some of the things that I, I think we've, we've used to, along the objective lines to, to get there. Now, are you double, you mentioned this before, how you, you'll find people with their strengths. Actually, you mentioned it with, with you specifically, where you'll double down on your strengths. Um, yeah. As opposed to trying to kind of fill in the weaknesses, how would you say that relates to your strength and conditioning programming? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you ever want to ignore weaknesses. Like, you always want to bring things up. Um, you know, I think the concern is, is more like, you know, sometimes you go to attack that weakness and you can create more problems, right? Whether that's, um, you know, actually taking someone and giving them too much motion transiently. That's like the, the old Greg Rose, you know, story about, like, the chiropractor who, who adjusts everybody right before the first tee at the charity golf tournament and they all have their, their worst round ever and finish up with back pain. You, you give them motion they can't control. So that's... You know, certainly concerned. And also, you never want to be, you know, stretching guys into a bony block or, or something like that. Very rarely are you ever going to get into trouble adding good stiffness to the system. But there are times when you take away what you think is bad stiffness. It might actually be there for a reason. So treating a bunch of protective tension can sometimes, you know, get people in a, in a you know, much worse spot than beforehand. Like, I'll be honest, like, we don't really stretch hamstrings ever, you know. Yeah. And we don't have hamstrings injuries, you know, nearly as high as the industry average. You know, we're, we're actually establishing good stiffness to, you know, restore someone's posterior pelvic tilt and tone down some protective tension. So it sounds silly to say, but yeah, you're adding stiffness to a system that's already stiff so that it moves better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see this. I mean, I definitely see this uh, pictures, but uh, you look at the NFL defensive back. I mean, those dudes are so anteriorly tilted, yeah. right? And so like trying to figure out, okay, how do we train around that? without robbing them of that because yeah. that that tension just makes them so freaking explosive it also yep. makes their backs hurt it also yep. makes their hamstrings blow up but but how do you do that without giving them a three times 30 second hamstring stretch yeah. for home right because that's the truth and you gotta also appreciate that like there's there's nothing fundamentally healthy about playing sports at an incredibly high level like there's there's nothing natural about throwing a baseball like nfl guys are running into 350 pound you know, dudes like that's 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 not inherently healthy. Like even just looking at like tennis players, what they go through, like you know, forty weeks of travel every every year. It's just nobody's really built for that, but they, they do it because it's their livelihood. They don't do it forever, um, yeah. and I think it's on you know on us to figure out how we can best you know optimize them during that window of, of competition. Of course, you bring up tennis. I you <laughs> always look for a way to sneak in some type of tennis analogy. Okay, so now within this program, so. Um, you, well, you take all that information, then what happens? Like nitty gritty, you go home that night, like you just shared with me, hey, I'm going to yeah. spend the rest of the night going through hundreds of Yankees data mm -hmm. and to put together their programming. Is, are you doing that if you did that eval for this yeah, double so, picture? You know, as a good rule of thumb, like at our facilities, if, if you evaluate someone, you, you write their programs. Um, so that's kind of how you know, everybody kind of has their, their people that they watch over, even though we, we coach as a collective. Um, yeah, so if I'm doing the assessments, like I'm, I'm the one writing the program, I'm the one, you know, overseeing the off-season progressions and, and all that. So, and, I, and I'm also, you know, expected to be the one that's kind of doing the check-ins just on how things are going and whether it's on-the-fly evaluations or, you know, in some cases it's, it's notifying other members of the staff like, hey, this is something we saw with this athlete. Let's be mindful of not doing this, but instead let's do this. Um, so I think you always want to, I mean, it, you know, you, you got to communicate like that's, that's the biggest lesson, particularly, you know, it's, it's something I learned as extra important as our staff has grown. And I think it was really easy when I was like a one man show or it was just me and another person, you could just like do everything on the fly when the, the foot traffic wasn't high enough. But as our staff grew and like, I'm, I'm not at the facility every single hour it's open, it's, you know, it's physically impossible. So you, you do have to empower your people and, and, you know, and, and give them a chance to, to struggle a little bit in the best way possible where they can actually see some of these challenging cases because that's the only way um, they get better. You just, like I said earlier, you, you try to set the guardrails as best as you can. Yeah. Okay. So, so you map out how many weeks of that program before you sit down and, and reassess? I, 
to be honest, I write. I, I might have a, a longer term vision in my head, but I write in four week blocks. Okay. Um, that's something I've always done. I, I, I think one of the, the worst things you can do is like try to map out an entire off season. Mm-hmm. Um, like there, there are some like loose templates. Like I will kind of template out our movement stuff for the entire off season, um, just because I have a feel for like what the calendar looks like and. You know, when do we want guys to start running bases and, and you know, when do we want to go from more, you know, open loop as opposed to closed loop and stuff like that. Um, you know, when do we want to, you know, do more time sprinting? When do we want to compete more? You know, where do we want to pull back, you know, late in the, the offseason when our position players are taking away more ground balls and, and, you know, out in the outfield doing their thing. So those are all things that are, I think are a little bit more templated. But um, for the most part, you know, we, we try to give our coaches a lot of poetic license. You know, there's certain key things like, Everybody's going to train end range, you know, rotator cuff control into external rotation. It's like vitally important. You know, everybody's going to work on scapular upward rotation. You know, chances are we're going to have to do some positional breathing to get guys a little more neutral and posteriorly tilted. Like, so, you know, you'll see competencies that we want to see in just about everything. But, um, you know, I, I am a big believer in, in letting your coaches, you know, have a little bit of poetic license. And so, um, you know, the term arm care gets thrown around so frequently. How do you define arm care, and where does it show up in this program? Yeah, um, you know, so I, I think for me, you know, arm care to me is exercise. You know, I, I, I view manual therapy as something that's just, that's just separate, and they're both wildly important to keeping people healthy. But you know, I don't necessarily lump it underneath that umbrella. Um, you know, it, to me, it's there's there's stuff that's daily. There's stuff that maybe only a couple times a week, and then there's stuff that's somewhere in the middle. You know, some of your daily stuff and your warm ups might be your positional breathing, your you know, your scapular upward rotation stuff, your serratus activation, your end range rotator cuff control, stuff along those lines. You know, and then there's there's different things that you might attack, you know, in the course of a week. You know, whether it's, you know, actual scapular control work with your, you know, classic low trap and things like that. More um, serratus interior activation stuff with TRX serratus slides and bear crawls and stuff like that. Um, certainly have like actual cuff strengthening work. Um, you can do stuff, you know, both in like the sideline position, which you know tends to give you better EMG. I, I tend to favor a lot more stuff up at ninety ninety, just because it's that's the position where guys live their lives. Yeah. Um, so we'll do some some manual resistance up there. You can use cables and things like that if you don't have access to manual resistance. Um, love a lot of like bottoms up stuff, both waders walks and carries, um, just to get some reflexive rotator cuff you know recruitment. Um, we are doing more and more direct forearm work than I think we ever have before. Um, everything from like you know, finger and wrist isometric holds to pronation, supination to radial ulnar deviation. Um, and what made you go that route? Um, you know, I, I think the research is pretty compelling that, you know, your, your, your flexor carpal ulnaris takes a ton of stress off of your, your UCL. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just, we're probably just doing an athlete a disservice if we don't train them through the amount of pronation and supination they have. There's also a little bit of research to suggest that, you know, actually finger strength may have, um, some predictive capabilities with respect to you know spin rates and, and potentially even protecting elbows. So I think with the the epidemic of elbow issues that we're seeing, we got to do as much as we can to, you know, basically fortify the soft tissue structures. You know, not just in terms of strength, but also tissue quality and manual therapy and things like that. Um, so so we are doing a lot more of that stuff for sure. And so if that's if grip strengthening flexor copilaris is your kryptonite towards UCL, by the way, that's powerful. I hope that's true. What's yeah, your... I don't. I put it this way. I, I still think at the end of the day, these injuries are incredibly multifactorial. But I do think it's something that, you know, we, we probably could have attacked more 
you know, eight, nine years ago, and it probably three or four years ago, we really started pushing it considerably more. Um, I think you have to be mindful because when you give guys an inch, they tend to want to do it every day. Yep. Um, so just being mindful of that is, is important. But, you know, it, it's something that I think has served us well. Did you see a change? I mean, with all this data collection, did you see a change yeah. in your injury rates? Or you see yeah, with that? you know, it's it's fascinating. Yes, I mean, I, I would say anecdotally, it's just so hard to to really evaluate it because you're you're never getting the same guys each year, and and frankly, the the average fastball velocity continues to climb. Sure, you know, it's it's pretty substantial. So, um, you know, do I feel feel good about our, our injury rates on the on the private side? Yes, like we didn't we didn't have a single you know hammy groin calf or. Um, or quad from one of our pro guys this spring. Like that's a, a big deal for every one of our position players and pitchers to get through, you know, seven weeks of spring training without a single lower extremity thing. I mean, I'll, I'll knock on wood. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's always going to be stuff that you take on. So this is this is the challenge of working with throwers. Is, um, you know, there's there's obviously a lot from how pitchers are built up and you know, how workload is appreciated in different places. And you have, you have some organizations where guys are going to get great manual therapy and some where they can't get any. Um, you have some organizations that are going to feed guys great and others they are going to feed guys dog food and yeah. cover it in vegetable oil. So, um, you know, there's just very different experience when they go out there. But the thing that I think has actually been the biggest confounding variable is we, we've actually gotten more and more broken people that have come to us. So that's the challenge is it's, it's different if you have a bunch of 21 year old guys with no injury history and you train them and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're very easy. It's what, what do you do when you get that 34 year old guy who's trying to eke out a couple last years of his career and he's already had two surgeries. We do tend to draw a lot more rehab cases. And I love those, you know, cases where I enjoy challenges and things like that. But what it does is it makes it very, very hard to, to scrutinize injury rates. And honestly, if you look at major league baseball injury statistics, the youngest teams always have the lowest injury rates. Mm -hmm. They, they generally also tend to be the, the teams with the, the lowest payrolls. Um, so they, they don't necessarily bring in a lot of veteran players with accumulated wear and tear who might be high upside, um, but more often than not, the rosters are, are, are more transient. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're less likely to put guys on the IL for, for stuff that, you know, it's a 10 to 15 day IL. So if you have something that a guy think, you know, he might need five or six days off, like, you know, the IL is going to be more of a roster management thing for, for an affluent team that really wants the, the competitive advantage of like, hey, if you're going to be out six days, we can't play shorthanded. You're going to go on the IL and we'll, we'll bring somebody up who can deliver. You know, you have other markets that just don't do that. They'll sit a guy and they'll, they'll play shorthanded just to save some money. So it's it's a very different thing across, you know, different organizations. And it's, it's not in any way like illegal or anything like that. It's just a, it's a perspective thing that, that absolutely impacts some of the injury rates that are actually reported. It is. It's. Uh, that's a great point. It's such an awesome take, and, and you have such a unique insight into that. I actually heard you one time, I think, so correct me if I'm wrong. You describe that if individuals inside a professional organization do not have individualized strength programming, shame on that strength coach. Did you say that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's put it this way. Our, our guys, you know, in both the private sector and in my work with the Yankees do, yeah. Um, you know, that's the expectation is that everybody's, and don't get me wrong, you can, you can batch athletes and yep. see some of those, but you know, it's, it's actually really fascinating to see, um, I don't know how familiar you are with like Peter Atia's work. I guess you had a book that just came out in the last yeah. couple of days that, that I'm like halfway through already. It's outstanding, but he talks about kind of like medicine 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 and you know, 1.0 is just, you know, it was bloodletting and, and very, very archaic. And then obviously like the introduction of antibiotics and, you know, basically, you know, getting rid of catastrophic disease, things like that was, was kind of 2.0 and, and 3.0 that he, you know, he talks about it's, 
you know, it's, it's basically heading things off. It's more proactive stuff. And, you know, he talks about the problems with like insurance doesn't cover, you know, training or exercise interventions, but it will always cover metformin and you know, insulin, all these things. Once you're actually declared diabetic, it's, it's, it's very backwards. Um, you know, I think, I think we're getting to, you know, training 3.0. I don't know if maybe there's more, more layers to it, but, you know, I think we are getting to the point where athletes are getting much, much more individualized plans. Um, that's, that's been a good thing that I've seen, you know, across most organizations in professional baseball and definitely in the college setting as well. Like there are, um, you know, more opportunities for, for access to expertise among players. So I think it's actually trending in a, in a much better direction. So, you know, I don't know when we had that conversation, but it was something that we were doing in the private sector. You know, you do the, you look at the way things are staffed, like each coach probably needs to take 30 guys on, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically one roster and, um, you know, maybe a few rehab cases and things like that. And, you know, certainly there's Dominican academies and, you know, international prospects that, you know, that deserve, you know, a, a ton of attention and have so much, you know, up, developmental upside as well. So um, I, I think it can be done. You know, I, I, I've, I've seen it done. You know, we've integrated both in the private sector and, you know, in, in a major league organization. So I, I think it's an exciting time on that front. It is an exciting time. I, first of all, Peter Atia learned how to be a doctor in Baltimore. So, of course, I know who Peter Atia is. But um, Another bald guy. So we, they, we, we, a good we, one. We, we identify with him. <laughs> That's exactly right. So um, it's. I think you're right. I loved when you said that. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you said that because that I, in, in the past, that was what the private sector did. That is what we do in our practice is – you're one-on-one, you get an individualized case, you know, like we can't even use electronic medical records the way they're designed because every time that athlete walks in, we're giving them something just a little yeah. unique, right? So it, it, I'm telling you, it's not in all the organizations, as you well know, and I deal with especially a lot with pro football. It's just very rare to find these individualized programs. And I think eventually from a dollars and cents point, cents standpoint, maybe they come around on it. But it has been a massive challenge. So I love that you're changing that with the Yankees. What I like is that it's a, a lot of it's athlete driven. You know, yeah. we see we see players that are just intrigued. Their their growth mindset, they're curious, and they're going out and finding it. Like I and, and to be honest, like I learn from our athletes all the time. Mm-hmm. Like they might go out and train with somebody else and, you know, bring great ideas, you know, to us when they when they circle back and, and I'm I'm totally on board with that. Um, you know, and we collaborate with people across you know, various industries, whether it's, you know, skill coaches or physical therapists or mental skills coaches, there's all different people who can, who can help athletes be successful. Where do you get that humble mindset? Cause that's what it takes. Yeah. Where did I, that come I, had, from? I had to, I wasn't a baseball player. I, I, I was a third baseman up until eighth grade. Um, and, and that was that I was a much better tennis player. So, you know, you say that was the path that I took and, you know, and so when baseball kind of found me, um, you know, I had to do a, a lot more listening. I had to ask a lot more questions. And um, f- funny story, uh, Kurt Schilling was actually my first big leaguer that I ever trained. Um, you know, he basically had a, a shoulder surgery at the end of his career. And Great Oriole, um, by the way. He was a great Oriole. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I'll never forget, we were, you know, doing some of his early stuff. It was, it was the first, you know, subpectoral biceps tenodesis in major league history. So it was, you know, very, you know, early on in the surgery that, you know, it's kind of jury's still out on whether it really works in throwers. Um, but as we were talking about like going through stuff, we'd started his throwing program. Like I remember him talking like, Hey, you know, when, when we get this going and, and just in hindsight, he, he opted not to do it. He was, he decided to, to be a dad and to, you know, you know, basically go on some business ventures and, and all that stuff. But one of the things he said to me, is like, Hey, we're, when we get this further along, like you're coming to Arizona with me, like we're, we're doing this, like, you know, we're gonna have to go throw for teams and stuff like that. He's like, 
do you do PFPs? And I looked at him, I was like, what's a PFP? And he just laughs. And, yeah. and I, I had no idea what, yeah. what it stood for. I mean, this is 2008, um, you know, and, and sure enough, like it was just like a good reminder, like, you know, A, I have a lot to learn, but B, like the secret to this is like, you know, he was super patient. Kurt taught me a ton. Like, I know he's come under a lot of fire in the media and, and I will defend him, you know, and in my, from my interactions, he was wonderful to me and taught me a ton at a really formative time in my career. And we're, we're still good friends and, you know, and text often just, um, you know, a guy who really took me under his wing, um, you know, when he had a lot to teach and I had a lot to learn. So I think anytime you have that, that opportunity to pick the brain of a guy who's, you know, 41 at the time, I think, and now has that much time in the big leagues, you, you definitely got to soak it up. Yeah. And, and I think what you did is you didn't pretend like you knew it, right? Like, and I, I was just on the field working with, um, an ACL. This is an ACL meniscal repair, ALL, one of the first ALLs in the NFL. It's a lot of acronyms <laughs> and, and like he's six, six and a half months post-op. And so we're on the field, we're doing change of direction. Now I can coach the hell out of that. Um, every sports PT should be able to, I don't understand his job Same. and his duty as a linebacker, as an elite level linebacker with a boot, with a play action, with a slant. I don't know where the hell he needs yeah. to be. So he is like breaking it down. Like I am a four year old. <laughs> so, so what would be worse is if I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, I got this. And I give him a drill that makes zero sense. Right. So mm -hmm. like always be humble. That's, that's a great, shilling story i hope yeah. one day this and, and that's good. true of so many people like sam, sam fold is the, the general manager of the phillies and, and sam trained with us um you know during his his career probably the last five or six years um and i you know i just distinctly remember like sam you know you went from playing next year you were like i think he was player information coordinator in the phillies dugout and two years later he was their gm so like you know you don't become a gm like three years after you retire like there's a there's a time flow um, i trained brandon gomes who's now the general manager of the dodgers um, I was cracking up today. We, we actually played the Giants for opening day. And Antoine Richardson um, is their first page coach. He trained with us during his career. And then Craig Albernez is their, their, their bullpen coach. He trained with us. I'm like, I'm getting old. But the, the bigger thing I look at is all these guys is um, they were all curious. And, and Sam reaffirmed that in the, in the interview I did on my podcast back in the day. He's just there. They're always trying to intrigue to try to find the, the path that, that leads them to the answers. And you know, I think in some way or another, like we helped them to find some of those answers. And when we didn't have the answers, we, we showed to them that like, hey, we're gonna work our butt off to try to find them if we don't have the right solution for you right now. Yeah, um, I was, I think Sam is so curious and so locked in individually, interpersonally. I mean, he just, uh, I, I got to spend a couple of weeks with him in the World Baseball Classic yeah. and he just, act, one of the very few professional athletes that looks up at me while I'm working on his shoulder and he's like, um, like, how many kids do you have? You know, like, like actually like gave a damn about the person working on him is really refreshing. So, man, you are king of segues. Here we go. I, I learned to do this lightning round at the end of podcast from, <laughs> from, from a genius strength coach. So I stole it from Robertson for the record. <laughs> you did. Okay, fine. Well, you're great at it. So, um, here we go. Um, you play, um, tennis against Sam fold who wins. You know, Sam's played way more tennis than I have. So I, I think Sam beats me for now. But if I play for a year, like I, I could be a good tennis player in probably two months. Like if so, I really dedicated myself to it, it would come back really quickly. Yes. But do you beat Sam Fold in two months or a year? Uh, I probably need some time. I think I'd hold my own though. I just, I don't know how much he's been playing, man. They went to the World Series. He, 
He's, he's got like twenty. He's got like twenty-seven kids now. Dude, he's playing. Yeah, yeah he's else? playing. <laughs> I'll, I'll, that's that's a great one. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I'll right. give I'll give him the nod for now. Oh, but okay, I love it. I, I believe in myself long term. Okay, yeah, you're smart. Okay, um, tell the world how you are at fixing things around the house and the gym. Word on the street is you're the world's greatest plumber. Huh, I'm terrible. That was actually an inside joke. Um, I. I fixed the chain on the toilet at CSP one time. And so Shane, who was who incredibly like mechanically inclined, he, he'll fix anything. Um, he's kind of like a home improvement ninja. Shane had one of our staff members make, make a sign for, for best plumber ever. I, I'm, I'm terrible. Like we, we bought a bike for our daughter's fourth birthday and I was putting it together after she had gone to bed and I, I broke it and I had, my wife had to like ship it back and get a new one. She's like, don't touch this one. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at the shoulders and elbows, but like, don't ask me to put other things together. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Um, okay. One baseball player you wish you got to train. Ooh, that's a great question. Mm. I'm trying to think of somebody before my time that, that I always enjoyed seeing. You know, I think uh, um, you know, like I, I interacted with him a little bit, you know, really late in his career. You always wonder about a guy like a David Wright, you know, like just so talented. Um, you know, a guy like Grady Sizemore, just these guys that were were, you know, you know, Grady Sizemore more of like the freak athlete. David Wright obviously like an incredible talent. You you always wonder what would happen if you had, had more you know, some time with them early in a career, you know, that with that said, I don't, I don't think that is in any way a, a reflection of the people that they worked with. I think it's more just like, I, I love the game of baseball. When you see someone who, you know, kind of, um, you know, their, their, their career expires before their time, like that's, that's frustrating. And you know, I, I think the game should be played at a high level. So anytime you see guys like that, that retired for, for various reasons that, you know, you know, we're obviously injury related. It's, it's something that makes you wonder. So, um, great, no, I think th those are some of the, probably the, the two talents that, you know, I, I think over the last probably 20, 25 years you, you wonder about, right? Yes. Oh, that's a good freaking answer. I was not yeah. expecting Grady Sizemore. Um, okay. The book that you most gift and why, and it can't be any of the books you already mentioned today, no, that's all good. including, um, including the e-myth, which you kind yeah, of spoke to. There you go. Uh, I think legacy by James, it's, I think it's pronounced Carr, K-E-R-R. -R. Um, great book, um, all about the, the All Blacks Rugby Club and you know, kind of how they went through a correction period, what they did to get out of the funk, um, some, some tremendous leadership lessons. I, I think that one is, is really good. That's good. Okay, I'll put that on my list. Um, okay, what do you wish physical therapists were better at? Um, you know, I, I would love to have them just in general, understand adaptation in the weight room more. You know, I think what I think we see a lot of people is they can get people asymptomatic and they can start to optimize function. But, you know, return to play is very different than return to performance. And that's something that we see as, as really, really kind of like concerning is um, it's why we see athletes go back and get injured so often is that, you know, they didn't, you know, really like get all the way back. Like, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, like, we, uh, we rolled out probably the most aggressive base running initi initiative in the history of professional baseball last year, and our lower extremity injury rates went, went incredibly far, further down. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we utilized it as part of our return to play so that when we did have acute injuries, guys came back faster than ever before. And all the time, like people have just said, you know, you're gonna pull your hamstrings if you run fast, and it's the actual opposite. If you don't run fast in training, and you actually go and you, you try to put yourself out there in competition and compete at that level, you're not prepared for it. So I, I wish more of physical therapy would get to 
the levels that actually performance mandates. It's not just like, all right, you play catch at 90 feet and you're good to go. Yeah. Your shoulder doesn't hurt anymore. Let's, let's keep our fingers crossed. Like, I wish they would maybe appreciate the level of adaptation it takes to really be successful over a longer term. And I, I know that's also heavily impacted by you know, insurance visit approval and a, you know, a million, it, it, million logistics. But I do think we need to get a little bit more higher level and, and, and challenge it, people that way. It is. It is influenced by insurance. But uh, I, like we said before, it's on the therapist to do that, like find yeah. an Eric Cressy and figure yeah. out how they're loading their athlete appropriately and find the, the latest and greatest track coaches and how are they teaching speed stuff like that I, I think it's interesting you say hey we're running more and we're getting hurt less when we run i mean you're describing a sensitization of so many yeah. different structures right and okay. and how do we do that and we're seeing this in the tendon world we're seeing this in patellar tendon achilles yeah. tendinopathy like we have to create graded exposure we have to get these athletes close to doing what they're doing and we have to understand what they need to do. That's yeah. your point, right? We have to understand that. Okay. What do you wish strength coaches would do better? Um, I, I wish, you know, it's probably part of a bigger discussion. I, I do think that the barrier to entry in our industry is too low. And, and the, the trickle down effect of that is I wish strength and addition coaches would be more professional. I mean, that, that applies to all fitness professionals, not just you know, strength and addition coaches or first applies to personal trainers, folks like that is, you know, I, I think they need to be able to carry on a more professional conversation with, with you know, orthopedic surgeons, with physical therapists, with athletic trainers. Like, I, I, that served me incredibly well in, in my career. You know, if we're talking about this interaction, it's, it's very different if you're, you know, you're doing group exercise and things like that. But I, but I think in this like this higher level vein, it's just so vitally important to be able to just at least speak the language so that you can collaborate um, and work across these disciplines. Um, you know. I, I sat down with our team doctor and you know our head athletic trainer and our director of sports medicine and one of our players to go over MRI results and, and return to action plan today. Like that's that's what good care should encompass. It's sports medicine, it's strength conditioning, it's you know it's a team doctor that's you know kind of critically evaluating how healing is taking place. Like that that's what you want. The last thing you want is those three people or those three departments all in different rooms and the athlete just being like, well, I I hope he talked to that guy. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and both ways, right? That yeah. I, I want to see that MD talk about cuff recruitment. I want to yeah. see them talk about uh, protraction, retraction, how to load those things. Yeah. And you will find it. Like I said, like the, the last conversation I had with the doc was eye-opening. He, yeah. he knew and gave a damn a little bit about PT. Now, I will say I'll go to some shoulder conferences, and these are elite-level surgeons. Mm -hmm. They they tell me, okay, first thing we do is a full body you know, screen. And mm -hmm. then we start, I'm like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Like, tell me what your full body screen looks yeah. like. And th I think they can learn from us and obviously vice versa. Um, I just try to get, and I'm sorry to cut you off. Like I, I just try to get in that conversation whenever I possibly can. So, so case in point, um, saw an athlete a couple years ago who was diagnosed with a, with a subscapularis strain, right? And what we know about the subscap, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge muscle. It kind of blends with the inferior aspect of the capsule. Um, and one of the things that I learned in that time was that he was misdiagnosed in the first round. It was actually a, a capsular injury that kind of bled through. And it looked like a, like a subscap. And in reality, it was, it was a capsular injury, which is more significant. Um, and, you know, it basically taught me the lesson there was anytime there's a subscap, you always refer it up you know, the chain to someone who, who can evaluate whether it's a capsule. In some cases, they'll do an arthrogram and stuff like that. And as I went through that, I had a great conversation with Dr. Alchek. 
He said, you know, one of the biggest issues with, with subscapularis injuries, why they're so hard to diagnose. I'm like, no, he's, he talked about it on my podcast. He's like, some orthos and radiologists are lazy. They don't look at all the MRI segments and it's, it's, it's big enough and you have to hit it from all the different angles. And, and sometimes they just don't glance at it if they don't see it on the first one. I'm like, man, it's, it's there in front of them and they just don't look. Yeah. Um, and so it just taught me like anytime I hear the word subscap, I immediately have an action plan. And, and since those conversations, I, mean, I think we, Dr. Alchuk was on the podcast in early 2020. I've had three or four instances where like one of them has come across my desk. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, they're telling you to throw in two weeks. I would just be, I would feel way better if they look to make sure this wasn't a capsule. And in, in like two of the four, it was, and it was more of like a two month shutdown. One of them did really well with stem cells. It just was one of those like, you have to kick the door down to those conversations and listen and take it all in and, and, you know, and ask, you know, questions if you're not clear on something, because invariably it's going to help another athlete out down the road. Yeah. I love it. You, you got to go the extra mile, right? Mm -hmm. And you, man, um, you live it and you live what you preach because it's freaking 10 o'clock at night <laughs> or whatever it is. And you're in your hotel room helping me out, just jumping on a pod. So I cannot thank you enough. You, you've been awesome with your time. You have been unbelievably responsive. Like, I'm, don't give your email out because when I email you and you respond to me, I'm like, what the hell is this guy it's doing? It's, it's awesome. So I appreciate it greatly. Sam Fold appreciates it greatly. Um, but I think sports PTs around the world really just got better from that conversation. Tell everyone where they can find you. Awesome. Thank, well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, social media is just at Eric Cressy on both Instagram and Twitter. Um, the podcast is the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. Um, you know, for the clinicians that listen, there there actually is a ton of kind of clinical based uh, you know content. We've had several you know well known orthos that have been on it. Um, a lot of people in the research realm as well. So I think that's a probably a good resource for folks. And then the hub is kind of ericcressy.com. You can find your way to our our facilities in Florida, Mass. My newsletter, articles, all that stuff there too. So uh, again, thanks for uh, for taking the time to to you know sit down and pick my brain and, and I enjoyed, you know, throwing some ideas around with you. It's always, always good to connect. I've, I've enjoyed our interactions over the years. Yeah. Eric, I appreciate you. And thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Please listen, learn, and share our content and leave us a five-star review wherever you consume your true sports pod. That little act of kindness will go a very long way to helping us and helping our profession. You can reach out directly to me with feedback on the pod, what you loved, what you didn't love, and who you want to hear from. Also, if you want to join our team of outstanding sports PTs, shoot me a DM on Instagram at TrueSportsPT or email me directly, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at TrueSportsPT.com. Because after all, this is what sports rehab should be. Look forward to hearing from you all soon.